Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Church, we're in Philippians chapter 4. One last time. We're coming to the end of our uh, series um, in the book of Philippians. But Philippians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. You know, this week in my preparations for today's message, I was thinking about how my dad back in the day, he and I often would make in-home visits to folks when we were off doing revival meetings together. And during one such trip, we had a delightful visit with a charming elderly woman. And during our conversation, I noticed a, a dish full of very appetizing peanuts sitting on her coffee table. And I just instinctively grabbed a handful and began to munch. Oh, then realizing my breach of etiquette, I said, oh, I, I am so sorry. Is it okay if I eat some of these? And she smiled and said, oh, that's fine. I don't want them. I've already sucked the chocolate off of them. <laughs> yeah, that has absolutely nothing to do with the message today. I was just making sure that you're still awake. Um, well, except to say that today we're coming to a very appetizing end in our study of the book of Philippians. Paul's letter to the, the believers at Philippi truly is a call to joy, not just to them, but to all Christians everywhere and all times and in all circumstances. A call to joy even in the most adverse of circumstances. In chapter 1, we discovered Christ, our life. Chapter 2, Christ, our mind. Chapter 3, Christ, our goal. And then these last two weeks in chapter 4, we're, we're discovering Christ, our strength. Now, in today's text, Paul is offering his final instructions. He's uh, offering a word of thanks, some salutations to the folks back in Philippi. But it's in today's passage that we actually discover this big idea that as believers, our response to God should be one of continual worship and gratitude, recognizing his faithfulness and his provision in our lives, both in material needs, but also in his gift of salvation. Now, several things, thank you for that amen, by the way. I think that was Kelsey. Was that Kelsey? Thank you. Gold star by your name, brother. In fact, I should have you move up to the front row. Uh, several key things that I want you to notice in the text this morning. Uh, let's look at verses 14 through 16, where we really see the power of godly partnership. Read with me if you would. Verse 14 says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once, more than once rather, when I was in need, he says. Now, here in verse 14, Paul expresses thanks. He says, it was good of you to share 
in my troubles. The Philippians had been, been very generous to support Paul, so his thankfulness has really been an undercurrent in this letter. I mean, right off the bat in chapter 1, he, uh, he tells them that he gives thanks to God with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. And then here at the end, he's once again expressing his gratitude to them. But in the next couple of verses, we actually come to understand why he's so thankful. See, in verses 15 and 16, we see that, that Paul extols teamwork. It says here, you know, that he's reminding them that um, even when their church was in its infancy, they still supported Paul when nobody else would. And so in the midst of his expressions of thanks, he's also praising the, the power of teamwork, really. In fact, you know, in this passage, we see Paul describes their, their generosity really in, in three different ways. First here in verses 15 and 16, um, he, he describes their giving as really as a partnership, a partnership in the gospel. Now that's the kind of partnership that, that all Christians, all churches should emulate. We need to understand something. We need to understand the inseparable relationship between financial giving and gospel partnership. I mean, because to put it succinctly, if you're not given to God's kingdom, well, you're not a partner who's taking ownership of the mission. You're not so much a partner or an owner as you are really more like a customer. Of course, that's not what the, the folks in Philippi were. I mean, they had skin in the game, as the saying goes. And even though many of them were not wealthy, they still had earned a reputation for giving sacrificially generously, cheerfully to support the gospel mission. But I think a lot of churches today are really full of, uh, they're full of eddies. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a patron of a local hardware store. He used to see an employee named Eddie there every time he went to the hardware store for a part or to purchase a tool. And then one Saturday, the patron comes into the store. He doesn't see Eddie anywhere. And so he asked the manager, hey, where's Eddie? Oh, we had to let him go. Really? You have any plans to fill the vacancy? Oh, Eddie didn't leave a vacancy. See, Eddie was never really and truly part of the team. He wasn't a partner in the work. He just kind of stood around taking up space. Now, in a lot of churches, people gladly assume the responsibility of giving to fuel the work of ministry. And, and then again... Some don't. They enjoy the benefits of the ministry, but give nothing back to the Lord in return. And in a sense, they don't leave a vacancy. But clearly, Paul viewed the Philippians as co-laborers, as partners, teammates. Their care and their generosity illustrated the incredible power of teamwork. And let me tell you, teamwork in the body of Christ, that's a beautiful thing, y'all. In fact, to illustrate that, that very thing, years ago in a letter that Chuck Swindoll wrote, 1991, in fact, he, he describes it this way. He says, it's geese that I find especially impressive. Winging their way to a warmer climate, they often cover thousands of miles before reaching their destination. Those in front rotate their leadership. When one lead goose gets tired, it changes places with one in the wing of the V formation and another flies point. 
By flying as they do, the members of the flock create an upward air current for one another. Each flap of the wings literally creates an uplift for the bird immediately following. One author states that by flying in a V formation, the whole flock gets 71% greater flying range than if each goose flew on its own. When one goose gets sick or wounded, two fall out of formation with it and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with the struggler until it's able to fly again. The geese in the rear of the formation are the ones who do the honking. I suppose it's their way of announcing that they're following and that all is well. For sure, the repeated honks encourage those in front to stay at it. As I think about all this, one lesson stands out above all others. It is the natural instinct of geese to work together. Whether it's rotating, flapping, helping, or simply honking, the flock is in it together, which enables them to accomplish what they set out to do. You see, church, geese know how to instinctively share their burdens. They know how to uplift one another. They instinctively know how they're stronger as a whole than they are individually. They know how to care for the hurting. They know how to encourage their leaders. And so these geese actually teach us the vital importance of supporting one another and working together to build strong relationships, to, to foster unity, to achieve our mission together. And that mission, of course, is to give flight to the, to the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the truth about Jesus' love and salvation in his name. And just as the Philippians supported Paul and his mission, you and I, we are also called to join hands in proclaiming the kingdom of God, knowing that the contributions that we make to advance the gospel can truly make an impact in our world. Now, I want you to look around you. The people sitting to the right of you, people sitting to the left of you, people in front of you, people behind you, they are your partners. And we together, the church, we are ambassadors for Christ. So here in verses 14 through 16, we really find the power of godly partnership. But as we move to verses 17 through 19, I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice the provision of God's abundance. Let's read together there in verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. A couple of principles at work here in these verses. And, and the first one's fairly obvious for anybody who, who has a, a, a generous bone in their body. And that's the fact that generosity brings gain. Paul rejoiced to see the Philippian church members re really acting like 
<laughs> well, like Christians. And, and before, you know, he had described their contribution really as, in terms of a partnership. But now he kind of changes the metaphor really to employ more financial terms. He highlights the fruit of their generosity. He says in verse 17, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. So here in verse 17, Paul's expressing his delight, not so much for the gift itself, because Paul's not looking to get rich, but for the blessing to the givers. Paul was more elated by their gain than he was their gift. Now, you may recall that Paul opened his letter in chapter 1, verse 11, by praying that because of their faithfulness, that they'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness, fruit that was going to abound to their eternal account, spiritual profit that they're gaining because of their giving. Well, that's exactly what happens when you and I give finances back to the Lord. I mean, it's, it's all recorded in a Christian's heavenly account books, and it's going to be repaid a hundredfold someday. And that glorious day when we stand before him. So Paul described their partnership. He described the, the fruitful return on their investment. But he also described the Philippian sacrifice as an act of worship. Now here's an odd question for you. What aromas do you find most pleasing? Now, having lived in uh, West Texas for 15 years, the smell of rain, uh, dry climate. In fact, the, the, the technical term is petrichor. That's the smell of rain hitting dry ground. I love that smell. Or wet pine trees. Every time it rains around here and I get a whiff of wet, wet, uh, wet pine, rather, it, it reminds me of my childhood and, and those summer trips to Glorieta, New Mexico. Or how about Krispy Kreme donuts coming right off the conveyor belt? Yeah. Your favorite uh, blend of coffee, brewing in the morning. By the way, Josh, Christy is going to be making an HEB run soon, so she'll bring back some more of that Houston blend that you love so much. Freshly baked bread or snickerdoodles. Love it. Now here's an odd one. Pipe tobacco. I love the smell of pipe. In fact, we've got a candle back at the house. It's called Grandpa's Pipe. It smells like pipe tobacco. How about, gentlemen, I know you'll appreciate this, charred meat on your backyard grill. Uh-huh. How about pretty much anything that comes out of Paula Owens' oven? Because she is an amazing cook, y'all. See, what's happening here in verse 18 is that Paul has moved from the financial metaphor uh, to, to Old Testament sort of uh, imagery. I mean, just as the sacrifices, some of those sacrifices in the Old Testament system of worship made a pleasing aroma that would be raised skyward, Paul described their sacrificial giving as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And he's identifying it as an act of the highest possible value, an act of worship. Now, while that particular idiom uh, kind of sounds strange to our ears, sacrificial obedience is an aroma that's pleasing 
to God. You talk about a motivation to give. I think Christians today need to understand we don't have to give. We get to give. We have the privilege of worshiping even as we're contributing to the work of the gospel. It, it, it should be all Christians' desire to be good stewards who live sacrificially in order to give a portion of their income back to the work of the Lord so that people will not perish for lack of having heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Back in 1884, there was a little girl named Hattie Wyatt she came to an all-too-small Sunday school facility at Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia. It was a fairly new church. It had only been founded 12 years before. She asked to be let in, but the church was literally overflowing with people. And because space was so limited, sadly, there was no room found for her. Now, less than two years later, Hattie fell ill. She eventually slipped away. But she had a curious little secret that no one knew about until beneath her pillow was found a torn pocketbook with 57 pennies in it, wrapped in a scrap of paper that read, to help build the little temple bigger so that more children can go to Sunday school. For two years, she had saved her pennies for the cause that was dearest to her heart. Now, the pastor shared this story with the congregation, and the people began making donations for the enlargement. Papers got wind of it. Next thing you know, it's being reported far and wide. And with fi within five years, those 57 pennies had grown to a quarter of a million dollars. And after that church's much-needed expansion project, the church, later to become known as Baptist Temple, would seat 4,600 people. In fact, it became the largest Protestant church in America at the time and would go on to found the Temple University with the goal of helping working-class people get an affordable education. See, church, there is great gain to be found in generosity. See, folks, all that we have it belongs to the Lord. David said in the Psalms, that, uh, speaking for the Lord, that the, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof. It's all his. And when we give back to him, we're only giving back a portion of what he already owns. I, I read something by Francis Chan this, this week that kind of made me chuckle. He says, don't be a ninja. Don't just appear on a Sunday, then vanish mysteriously. In other words, don't be customers. Don't be, instead of being customers, be co-laborers, be partners, be teammates through the giving of your time and the giving of your talents. And yes, the giving of your finances. And be blessed by God because of it. Because when we obediently give, you know, whether it is financially or whether we're giving of our, our gifts and talents, our time, God is pleased. And as a result, well, as we see in verse 19, his provision is promised. God promises to meet our needs abundantly. Verse 19, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. 
And so Paul's emphasizing the sufficiency of God's provision. He's assuring us that as we faithfully give, that we can trust in him that he's going to supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches. Because he's got more than ample resources for every need that we have. And time and again, if we'll just trust him by being a generous manager of the finances that he's entrusted to us, he will prove to us that you cannot outgive God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here's a thought. Do we give in order to get? Do we give to somehow earn brownie points with God? Do we, do we give thinking that somehow it's going to earn our salvation? Well, no. I mean, we give because we are saved. We don't give in order to be saved. We give as a natural response to the wondrous grace that God's already shown us. We give because, well, Jesus is a giver. Because we love him, because we desire to be more like him. We give because it's the right thing to do. And when we give, it brings joy to us because it is an act of worship. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. Now, obviously, you know, we don't treat God like some sort of celestial genie just passing out wishes or some sort of divine ATM machine that only exists to, you know, just feed our greed. But we can have the confidence that when we pray, we can go to God and ask him to give us this day our daily bread as Jesus taught us to pray. This, this promise in verse 19 is so beautiful. God used the Philippians to supply Paul's need. And Paul assured them that because of that, God was going to supply all of their needs according to the infinite resources available to them in Jesus. Now think back to last Sunday's message. We were talking about the secret of satisfaction, the Christian's secret to contentment. Do you remember what it was? Jesus is enough. Now once we know that, then like those believers in Philippi, we'll understand the connection between financial support and true gospel partnership. And we're going to find that, that giving is a way that we can bear fruit, a way that we store up treasures in heaven, a way that we worship God. And we'll know that because of such generosity and sacrifice, we can trust God to take care of us. That is the provision of God's abundance. Let's move on, though. I want you to notice some things here in the last few verses, verses 20 through 23. And really, the, the third big thought in the, in the message this morning, we see the proclaiming of God's glory. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. 
The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. First thing you notice in this group of verses is Paul's adoration. Paul's actually concluding his letter to the church at Philippi with what's known as a doxology. What's a doxology? Well, we get it from this Greek word doxa, which simply means glory. And so a doxology is a spontaneous expression of praise, glory, adoration for who God is, for what he's done. Of course, we see it a lot in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. We see expressions of doxology in our hymn book. There's one that we sing a lot. You know the words. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That is a doxology. But Paul's doxology here at the end of Philippians, it's not simply driven by thanks for God's provision and for the partnership with the church at Philippi. It's driven by Paul's ultimate life purpose, which is to give glory to God now and forever. And guess what? It's our purpose too, y'all. We exist for God's glory. He created you for his good pleasure to bring him glory. That's our life purpose. Bill Dyer, wonderful Christian man, generous, loving, godly man, a spirit-filled worshiper, and a member of Eagle Heights Church in Oklahoma City where Christy and I were for 13 and a half years. Bill Dyer was a man who knew how to recognize God's goodness. And every time he recognized God's goodness, the first word out of his mouth was glory. Every time a profound truth left the preacher's lip, a, a truth from the word of God proclaimed from the pulpit, the first word out of Bill's mouth, glory. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Paul's doing here. Glory! He's capping off his letter with wholehearted praise. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And because he's provided for us our salvation, and because he continues to sustain us, the only proper response to that is glory. Think about it. God gave up his son, Jesus, for our most desperate need, salvation from sin. But he also provides for our daily needs. He gives us joy that can't be found in anything else. And so it's only fitting that God alone gets the glory. And Paul understood that. And so he burst into spontaneous praise with a vision of the glory of God. Remember, Paul's in prison, and yet his spirit soared with a heart full of worship. 
See, we don't need bigger houses, we don't need bigger cars, we don't need bigger bank accounts to soar in worship. We just need a bigger vision of the glory of God. So we see Paul's adoration. After his adoration, verses 21 and 22, we see Paul's salutation. He's signing off. He says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. So thinking of all those believers back in Philippi as they've gathered together and were no doubt listening to someone read the, the letter that Paul had written to them. In verse 21, Paul greets every saint. And he also sends them greetings from all of the brothers and sisters who are with him. Now, that, that's kind of a subtle thing to us, the reference to brothers and sisters. But it reminds us of something, that Paul lived his life in Christian community within a family of faith, even when he was locked in prison. Now, in verse 22, he broadens his greeting to include all God's people. And it's a reminder to you and me that we are all part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. We're all part of that, that community of the Christian faith and the common bond of unity that should exist because of our mutual faith in Christ. But then here's something really curious. Verse 22, Paul sends greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. Now that kind of stirs our imagination. Who are the members of Emperor Nero's household that Paul is referring to here? I mean, were they some of the soldiers that had guarded Paul that had been saved because of his ministry? Were they slaves or freedmen who had worked in the palace? Were they actually officials of the Roman government? We really don't know for sure. But this demonstrates that, that truth can penetrate even the most forbidding walls of king's palaces, can plant itself right in the midst of those very people who are seeking to exterminate it. That even the, the mighty power of the Roman Empire couldn't stop the greater power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then after Paul's adoration and salutation, we find finally Paul's invocation, his blessing. In verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul's letter is saturated with grace. I mean, he opened it with a grace blessing, chapter 1, verse 2, and he closes the same way. The theme of the ages, grace, sparkles on every page of this letter. I mean, from God's promise to complete what he started in chapter 1, verse 6, to the promise that we have of being with Christ in chapter 1, verse 23, to the amazing self-emptying of Christ in chapter 2, verse 7, to the righteousness of Christ given to us in chapter 3, verse 9, to our heavenly citizenship in chapter 3, verse 20, to God's promise to supply all of our needs in chapter 4, verse 19. Paul's heart was filled to overflowing with the grace of God through Christ. A precious flood pouring into every channel of Paul's life. And you know what? It ought to be overflowing into ours too. Church, Paul has shown us 
the power of gospel partnership. He's shown us the power of God's provision is found in the truth that we cannot outgive God and that all blessing, honor, praise, and yes, glory belong to God. But as we read what Paul's laying down here, what do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Do we let it affect the way we live? What is it moving us to do? Well, the natural response for a Christian, it's, it's basic fundamental stuff. But the first one is very simply this. We praise. We praise God. We give him blessing and glory and honor. Not simply for his provision and blessings, not only for salvation, but also for who he is. Because God is deserving of glory. So we praise God. After we praise, we partner. We partner together, understanding that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And in other words, we are much stronger, much more effective working together, each of us according to our gifts, than we are working alone or not working at all. We praise, we partner, we present. We present the gospel. That's the mission. That's what we're partnering together for, the gospel, the good news of a Savior who purchased our salvation. Church, let's be about our Father's business. Now, speaking of the gospel, for those of you who've never heard, the gospel is the good news that God loves you. He loves you. You may be sitting here today not feeling so lovable. He loves you. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how hard you've tried or how far you've tried to run away from him. He loves you. And he's got a plan for your life. Now here's our problem. See, God is holy and perfect. We're not. You see, we've all done things that disobey or displease God. That's what the Bible calls sin. And sin separates us from God. It breaks the fellowship that man once enjoyed with God. It separates us from his presence. And because God is holy and just and perfect, he can't have anything to do with sin. Sin must be punished. That's not so good for us. But there's not need, any need whatsoever to fear because God had a plan. He sent his son Jesus to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. Now here's the wonderful thing about what Jesus did. He did not stay dead. <laughs> he rose again from the grave to prove his power and his love for us. And he is alive today with the Father in heaven. And he wants you to come to him. Now that means something for us. It means, first of all, we've got to make a U-turn from the way we've been living and turn back to him. That's what the Bible calls repentance. The word repent means to change your mind. You change your mind about sin. You turn from that. You turn 
to him in faith. And then you make that conscious choice to trust him for his forgiveness and salvation and eternal life in heaven. It's up to you. Now, it's not about anything that we can do. It's all about what Jesus already did. What we do is respond in faith. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace through faith. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve from God. Faith, though, is the key to receiving it. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.